Welcome to this MTech Access podcast. At MTech Access, we offer a complete global market access service from strategy through to implementation. In the UK, all our work is underpinned by authentic NHS insights. Our in-house experts work closely with a national network of associates who occupy strategic, operational and clinical roles within the NHS. Leaders in their field, their knowledge and experience helps MTech Access to be as close to the front line of care delivery as possible. To support our clients through the COVID-19 crisis and beyond, we launched this webinar series. Each week, we bring together two experts from the NHS to briefly present what is going on in their part of the health service. We have now converted this series into a podcast, so you can listen in as and when you like. Please subscribe to the podcast or follow our LinkedIn company page for more information. Good afternoon and welcome everybody to the latest in our series of COVID webinars. Um, it's been a, another interesting week in, in the world of COVID with the announcements yesterday about the easing of lockdown. So from the NHS perspective, it's going to be a crucial few weeks coming up as to how that manifests itself and whether we see uh, spikes in, in uh, COVID around the country anywhere. Um, for today, we are doing the second in uh, in our series of the changing face of care delivery. Last week, we looked at hospital and system uh, care, and this week we are looking at primary and community care. We're very lucky to have with us today uh, Steve Reed, who is the head of uh, community services at York Hospital Trust, and uh, Dr. John Ribchester, who is the GP and chair of the Encompass Partnership and a clinical director of the Whitstable BCM. I think I've, uh, I think I've got that out correctly. So um, they're both in, in very interesting roles that sort of span a bit of primary care and community care and, uh, and Steve with the, the hospital hat on as well. So looking forward to a really interesting conversation to sort of explore how services are arranging themselves and how they've responded to COVID and, and, and how that might carry on. So um, let's get stuck in today. Um, John, uh, I'll come to you first. Um, can you just for the benefit of our viewers describe how primary care has changed since COVID hit our shores and the context of the pace of change for general practice? Well, it's been a, a complete transformation for us all, I think. Um, we, we have had to start every consultation with either a video or an audio consultation and decide for um, face to face only when necessary when people do enter our one of our three medical centers they're greeted by a nurse who will take their temperature ask some screening questions and then either admit them or not depending on uh, whether they pass we also have a home visiting service um, and we vet home visits very carefully to make sure that we do them appropriately. Uh, but we have discovered that many home visits could actually be done um, without a face-to-face -face consultation. So in, in terms of that vetting and that, that triaging, which is something that, that has been mentioned before about the, this need for more intensive triaging, how, is, how reliable is that? How well can that be managed? It, it, I think I think we started off um, having to learn and um, we've got better and better at it and I think patients have got better as well. What we don't know is whether there will be a tsunami of face-to-face -face consultations as we return towards normal. Um, many GPs, including ourselves, um, are noticing um, a ramping up of the complexity 
of the audio or video consultations and a greater desire for people to come back into the surgery. Okay, and um, in, in terms of that complexity, what does that, what does that mean, the complexity that you referred to there? Well, I think um, many people w could take advice about how to manage a condition, but diseases evolve and as people's conditions have worsened, they have come back with more complex symptoms, more severe symptoms, and the need to see people and to investigate them or refer them is increasing. Okay, and so is that, do you feel that you're sort of holding back the tide a little bit and that sooner or later there's going to be a deluge of, of those patients that do need to be seen? Yes, I think there is a sensation that, that a lot of non-COVID pathology is waiting um, to be seen and of course the worry is there will be non-COVID harm as people are hanging on to conditions feeling they shouldn't go into a medical environment for fear of getting infected. Yeah okay and, and do you see that in particular therapy areas that's likely to be more prevalent or is that going to be across the board in all sort of long-term conditions? It, it's, it's rather across the board actually. Um, people with severe long-term conditions are getting worse. Um, we are seeing people who have been hanging on to, for instance, chest pain, shortness of breath symptoms uh, rather longer than they would normally. And of course the number of referrals for cancer has dropped um, Presumably, cancer hasn't become less common. Um, people are holding on to their symptoms at home, waiting for the right time to communicate. And that, that, that piece around the, the reduced referrals, I mean, obviously there's been a, a massive decline in the amount of people you're seeing. Has there been a change in clinician behaviour at all when it comes to referring? So has there been any change in what? Any, any, any change in, the clini in clinicians' behaviour in terms of referring? Are you, are you being discouraged from referring or or is it just that you're seeing fewer patients? We've, we've encountered problems with our local district general hospital not accepting referrals and we've had to have quite a lengthy dialogue uh, about whose responsibility it is when a referral is rejected. Um, it was only reasonable that the referral is being made um, but to bounce it and, and ask for a re-referral it doesn't feel very safe. Yeah, and who's the arbiter of that? Who decides if that referral should go through or not? Sorry, I'm, I'm getting a double sound here. Are you getting that as well? The, the, I'm, I'm not, but um, I, I was just asking who's the arbiter of whether a, a referral is is accepted? We, it, it's, it's gone up to the um, ICS, the integrated care system, um, to decide whether a hospital should accept referrals or reject. And um, currently, the ICS has said, you're a hospital, you really ought to accept referrals. And if you can't see people straight away, it's your responsibility to hand out an appointment when you can see them, rather than ask the GP to re-refer and then presumably keep referring until such time it can work. Yeah, okay, and, and that's a really interesting point about the ICS. Are they taking a more prominent role in any, any other areas? Um, we are having um, fortnightly discussions with all um, primary care network clinical directors and the NMC and the chief operating officer and other people of the ICS. So 
that they, they are reaching out in this new way of communicating. Uh, gone are the days of our 30 people round a table meetings. And uh, we are now having hour and a half meetings every Wednesday evening or every other Wednesday evening uh, where we can communicate directly. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so Steve, we'll come to you now. So you've got a very interesting role, which, um, well, yeah, I, I think for our viewers, could you just give a, a very brief summary of the role that you that you perform and um, sort of the geography that you cover? Yeah, so so we're an integrated acute and community provider, um, and my role is to manage the adult community services that we're responsible for. So. Um, predominantly district nursing, um, intermediate care, both bed-based and home-based community therapy teams um, and a range of specialist nursing teams as well as our um, kind of discharge service that's based within the hospital. Yeah, fantastic. So how were you developing community services before COVID came and, and how has COVID uh, impacted your agenda in that? Yeah, we've probably, there was kind of three main areas, I, I guess, in terms of, of, of the work we were doing developing services. So, so firstly, it was around how do we modernise um, community services. I think probably haven't kept up pace with the rest of the NHS at times in, in terms of um, both kind of workforce redesign and, and adoption of technology, um, or it's been variable across the country. So we've been, we were doing lots of work around mobile working, um, how we how we sort of truly have a workforce that can access the electronic a shared electronic record um, across community and primary care when they're in the home with a with a patient, um, a workforce that isn't dependent on registrants that that kind of uses skill sets across the board um, and administrative staff much more um, and looks at self management. So how do we encourage patients to take responsibility for their own care? Um, with us supporting them rather than a sort of paternalistic um, past. And um, secondly, um, how do we integrate services in the community around primary care networks? Um, so, so joined up teams looking after people rather than this kind of hodgepodge of, of services that we've had in the, in the past. And so that is around integration of our own services that can be a little siloed. Um, and then finally, and, and the advantage, I guess, for us of being an acute and community provider is that interface with acute services. So specialist nursing teams, um, rather than sort of the, the divide between hospital-based nurses and community-based nurses, or I'm um, thinking about the discharge part, that kind of experience of people who've been in a hospital setting and coming out to the community and, and how disjointed that can often be and feel. Yeah, okay. So, so, so I think what what we've seen with with COVID is really some some big cultural changes in teams. Um, certainly in the moment of, of a greater acceptance to take on um, some of the things that that perhaps we've seen some resistance to. Um, so mobile working, people not coming back to offices because of distancing um, rules means that they're having to use their their devices, video meetings, which have become part of of all of our our lives. But people doing that for like multidisciplinary meetings and the such like. Um, video consulting, we're, we're behind our primary care colleagues um, in terms of that, but certainly we've been about three weeks rolled video consulting out across all community teams in the past. That would have been a year at best and, and still some levels of, um, of kind of places where people didn't want to do it. 
um, and also they're working together a bit so some of the kind of barriers that we've seen when we've tried to get teams working together in terms of people's protectiveness around their their own um, area um, have, have reduced so our palliative care services were broken up into various teams funded through different routes um, and in the space of about three days um, they came together as a single integrated community palliative care service and I, I think that the kind of willingness of people to do those things very quickly has, has made a difference. I think a kind of more strategic level organisations have worked together differently. Um, we'd been doing lots of, of work whether that was kind of with primary care colleagues or other health or social care partners um, for a while but this has brought people together with a willingness to help each other and do things differently that we that we haven't seen before and taking on problems like support to care homes and genuinely seeing what we can each contribute to it rather than what are we individually contracted and, and responsible for. Um, and then I think the last the last bit is I've seen governance and access to finance has been easier. Um, so in the past, some of the barriers we have to jump through to, to implement a change um, have certainly reduced and I, I've been able to access funding for things that in the past would have been really challenging that that will be a problem for us as the national COVID funding um, diminishes um, and how that's sustained on a longer term basis but it's definitely been a, a, a big part of being ex able to accelerate some of the things we've needed to do. Brilliant, thank you. So would you, would you say that overall this has accelerated your existing agenda or is it that you've been doing a lot of additional stuff as a as a response. I I think the the vast so so I suppose there's two, there's two sets of things. One is around how we deliver services generally, and I think that's it's been an acceleration of things that we needed to do already. Um, we kind of we knew where we were heading, and and we've been able to get there faster. And some of the things we didn't quite know that we were going to have to do have materialised, and we've been able to move on them. I think there's then a second cohort of things which is the kind of specific response to um, COVID um, in terms of um, how do you deliver services in a world where there's a, a, a significant risk not only of, of our staff picking up infection from the patients they're supporting um, but, but also being the vector that takes infection between people's homes. Um, so, so all of those things we've had to put in in terms of use of um, personal protective equipment, how we organise segregation of teams into hot and cold and, and all of those type of things um, were the things that were outside of what we would have been doing normally. But the video consulting yeah. is a good example of something we should should have been trying to do anyway, um, but the, the need to avoid face-to-face -face contact has, has pushed forward. Yeah, thank you. And John, I suppose the same question to you, if, if I could. Has, do you think COVID's accelerated a lot of the agenda you're working on, or is it a whole load of additional stuff that's, that's come along for you? It, it, some things have accelerated and some things have paused. Um, in terms of accelerating, the concept of not all GPs doing the same thing, in other words, the hot teams, the cold teams, the visiting team and the hot site team, all of a sudden, uh, of our 29 GPs in our PCN, not everybody is doing the same thing every day. Um, they're all doing one of those four things I've mentioned. And this has been popular with some people because it's led to efficiencies, but hasn't been popular with everybody because what gets damaged is the personal care and the one-to-one -one relationship with a GP. If they pass from a 
uh, a video consultation to a face-to-face -to, -face, to a home visit is likely to be three different GPs now, whereas pre-COVID it will be one GP. The other side of things which, which hasn't been so great is that like some other um, practices, we provide a range of community integrated healthcare services, sort of thing you'd normally expect to have to go to a hospital for. So we provide a range of outpatients, diagnostics and surgery, including cataract surgery. We also provide an urgent treatment centre. And with the exception of the urgent treatment centre, all of those things we've been ordered to stop because that's elective work in the same way as hospital elective work should stop so we can redeploy people towards the COVID um, way of working. Um, of course, our waiting list is building up in the same way as hospitals waiting lists are building up. We're very eager to get started again, but we're waiting for the waiting for the green light um, to, to get going. So th that's been difficult. Um, and the patients have voiced the fact that they would really like to have their cataract done or their outpatient appointment or their x-ray or their ultrasound it's been a bit difficult and th that's a really interesting point that you know you you are obviously managing huge risks on the ground patients are wanting to be seen for certain things but you are being you're being told that you can't can't carry on with things do you think there might become a point where the there's sort of the instruction from above is that you can't do things but the the feeling on the ground is that actually we want to get things moving again if you're happy with the level of risk and patients are and how would you manage that yeah tom i think we're already there i mean there okay. people people want to work um they, they don't mm. want to be um just doing covid work they want to get on with the full breadth of what they do gps with a special interest want to get back to their dermatology or their ent or whatever um and uh, it's so it's always hard um, to stop and the patients know that ordinarily these appointments and diagnostics are available in the community and they're not now and I, I think you know quite apart from the, the loss of convenience um, some people are feeling that you know I really would rather like to see a bit better and have my cataract done and I'd rather like to have that ultrasound echocardiogram or whatever um, because I'm worried about myself and um, it can't be done at the moment so um, I think there is a tension between waiting for a, the green light as I put it across the country and the local feeling that we've got safeguards in place and we really would like to get back to um, a greater breadth and depth of work. Yeah but uh, I mean ultimately will it be a case of having to wait for that green light from uh, from Simon Stevens or, or Chris Whitty? Well, <laughs> uh, let's say um, discussions are ongoing. Um, mm. I, I think we're very keen to get going. Obviously, we don't want to put patients or our staff at risk, um, but at the same time, there's a risk of doing nothing. And, mm. you know, we do pick up cancers. Um, we, we do help people see again or get mobilized again with steroid injections or physiotherapy. All of this has stopped at the moment and uh, we're, we're eager to get going again, but obviously in a, a safer way as possible. Yeah, brilliant, thank you. And Steve, I suppose in a, in a similar vein, in terms of the, the community services, which obviously for you is, is quite a diverse range of, of things you're providing from patients. Do you see, um, in terms of the, the remobilizing, do you see the nature of community services changing and, and what's the role that you expect your team to play for patients going forward? 
Yeah, so, so I think probably comes back to some of your earlier question around how much of this has sort of changed the path and how much is it that we've moved down the path quicker. And I think um, what it's helped us to see is that many of those changes that, that we wanted and needed to make have been the right things to, to do. We've learned a lot as we've, we've gone along about things that do and, and don't work and, and have the ability to learn from that. But I think the the sort of the, the challenge that, that we've seen um, is that really for our local communities, they just want one service. They don't want this this kind of mismatch of different providers all doing a little bit of, of different things. Um, but how you go about structurally delivering that, because in the moment we've been able to do it, because I think people have, have just kind of accepted levels of risk that they wouldn't do normally the the organizations have been willing to do things in a in a way that they they wouldn't and that the financial side of things hasn't been as much of a problem so so as we go into the new normal as as, as people describe how do you how do you gain those benefits of kind of single team working um without a, a really substantial shake up of of how services are provided, which will inevitably get mired in different parts of the country on on sort of contractual basis and and, and sustainability and of, of providers. I think the other tension that we've seen is as as people have worked closer together, um, and and again this is something that was coming anyway. How would you maintain the role of the specialists? So whether that's a a, a specialist heart failure nurse or a physiotherapist, in what patient one, which is which is increasingly generalists who can do everything for them while they're in the home, and, and probably the last 20 years has seen the the growth of the specialist um, uh, taking over more and more, and and I think we're going back into a time of of, of the generalist. Um, certainly for our community teams, one person going in and doing everything as, that they can in that visit. Um, but how do you then still take those benefits of specialist knowledge and skills? So I think that's that's probably the tension we've got going forward. Yeah. Okay. And and how what role do you see um, other parties playing it? So I mean, we we you know I've got a primary care background. Obviously, social prescribing is is more and more prevalent in there. I know in in, in and around York, there's there's been lots of involvement from uh, from local authorities and social prescribing agencies and what have you in, in supporting community responses to COVID. Is that something that that you think is going to be a, a lasting change? Definitely, and and I think people have really seen the value of those individuals who understand the network of services that are available in the community to support people that aren't um, kind of traditional health and social care services. Um, clinicians um, struggle sometimes to, to let go, but also to navigate the complexity of what can be quite small neighborhood level services and therefore having having somebody who's who can really provide the expertise who can sit and have the time to spend an hour with somebody to understand what's going on in their lives and and actually what the root of their problems is rather than things that might be manifesting um has, has definitely been valuable and, and i'm sure will continue to grow yeah, thank you. And, and John, would you echo that? I mean, an interesting comment there from Steve about the return of the generalist. I suppose as a GP, you, you'd support that, wouldn't you? But in, in terms of that, do you, do you see that as, as coming back to the fore? And also, if you could comment on the 
sort of the idea of social prescribing and, and other services playing a greater part in care as well. Yeah, I, I've always been an enthusiast for integrated care. It, it seemed mad to me that when we, we were, when we were all at medical school, we were one tribe, and then we became two separate tribes, one called consultant, one called GP. And why did we do that? Um, in, integration is a much better idea. Uh, we already have, in, in our area, a large number of consultants working in the community with GPs and GPs of special interest. And uh, I think this is really the way forward. Um, we pioneered the idea of community multidisciplinary teams in Encompass, and um, so we've had that for five years, adding more and more people, more and more types of people all the time. So to have a community um, geriatricians who are no longer hospital-based, um, actually as part of the team, has made a huge difference and been of great value. And and the, the symbiosis between community trust people, uh, whether they be consultants, nursing grade or others, and GPs, is, is a benefit to patients. Um, I think the, uh, the the concept of social prescribing is something again we we pioneered on that, um, and we have two social prescribers um, employed in our PCN, uh, one mental health specialist, the other one social care specialist, and that's very valuable to patients um, and also other um, allied health professionals, so pharmacists, pharmacy technicians, physiotherapists. Um, the broader the team, um, if they're sharing the same multidisciplinary environment and the same electronic patient record, um, there's, there's efficiency there, there's a better service for patients. And um, I think Steve's saying the same thing, really, that this, this, is, this is really the, the right way to go. And let's try and break down these silos. Um, you know, some good must come of COVID. We've learned that we don't have to operate in silos, and I don't think we should in the future in the same way as we did in the past. Yeah, fantastic. Really, really positive comment there. So I suppose just in thinking about that bit around sort of an integrated primary and community care, if we sort of use that as a, as a bit of a catch-all, um, do you see any limitations around that in terms of particular disease areas or, or being able to provide particular services, obviously sort of surgery and, and specific things need to retain in a certain environment. But beyond that? I, I think there are I think there are some areas which are more obvious candidates for community uh, multidisciplinary care, frailty being the, the top dog, I would think. Um, and then M many of the long-term conditions work very well and can be helped very well in an MDT situation. For that matter, um, terminal care and pre-terminal care, it's very good. Um, to try to get buy-in from mental health will add another dimension and that they typically have been a, a bit late to the table. Um, that's not to say it can't work very, very well. Um, and of course, when it comes to children's services, that's probably the, the final frontier. I don't think we have done an awful lot with our community MDTs for children. And um, that's something for the future, I think. Yeah, and Steve, obviously children's services outside of your, your own particular remit, but from a hospital perspective, would you, agree with John's perspective on on what services are best geared up for delivering in in community settings yeah I entirely agree that frailty is the is the, the sort of the, the the most obvious one where community geriatricians coming out and working as as part of that MDT um, is a is a no-brainer to some 
some extent we've got to find better ways of caring for, for, for older people. But a number of, of specialties um, would be better delivered um, in community settings. And, and, and I think one of the things we've seen in terms of the, um, in the past, it was a, probably a thought of, do we live in a hospital building or in a community building somewhere? What we've seen over recent weeks is, doesn't necessarily need to be delivered in a building at all. Um, and being able to use technology as a way of, of, of accessing people in their own homes or, or other environments may help that breakdown of um, particularly consultants coming out of hospital buildings, which has, has sometimes been a bit of a barrier in the past. Yeah, fantastic. So we're, we've only got a couple of minutes left. So uh, just, I suppose, to end on um, you know, a, a blue sky thinking moment. So thinking of all the change that, that's happened, all the change that might still happen over the next few, few weeks, if there was one change that you could keep that would uh, would carry on within the NHS, um, what would what was the most profound thing that's changed for you, Steve, that you'd like to see uh, continued? Um, I think probably a, sh a shift in mindset to care how we think about care homes um, and the people who are living in them. I think for certainly what I've seen in community services is for too long, nursing homes in particular um, have been seen as, um, because they're privately kind of run and, and operated with, with nursing, that it's an area we don't necessarily get that involved in. And I think people's recognition that they are some of our most vulnerable um, people in our community and there's a collective response to how we support them regardless of the environment that they're living in um, has, has definitely been a, a big one for me. Brilliant, thank you. And same question to you, John, what would be the, the change you'd like to last? I'd agree with what Steve said, but I think also if we can um, use remote consultation for those patients we don't actually have to examine, that'll free up much more time for those people that do need more of our time. You know, 10 minutes per patient isn't very good. Um, and if there are some things we can deal with quickly with a remote consultation, we can do so much more good um, with the time that's freed up. Well, we're out of time now, so thank you so much. I could stay on all afternoon having this conversation. It's, it's fascinating, it really is. So thank you both uh, hugely for, for joining me today. Um, thank you again at home for listening in and joining us. Next week, we've got a special uh, episode. We're uh, running a questions time uh, session. No uh, copyright infringement there, hopefully. Uh, we're going to have a, a panel discussion with uh, for an hour with some of our previous guests looking at a whole range of your questions from uh, that you submitted in advance. We've already had quite a lot of questions. If there's anything you'd like us to address next week, please send it to us at nhsinsights at mtechaccess.co.uk and uh, look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to find out more about our work with the NHS or how we can support your market access strategy, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk.